welcome back to my podcast. I'm Nagapriya. Uh, in this podcast, I continue talking with Diamati about a work by the Japanese Pure Land Buddhist teacher Shinran. This time, we're looking at Shinran's major work, which is called the Kyogyo Shinsho, which is basically a series of scriptural passages that Shinran assembled. Uh, together with his commentaries on each of those passages and uh, together the, the work is considered to be his, uh, his major work. Uh, in this episode we're looking more specifically at chapter 2 uh, of that text. So I hope you enjoy the podcast. One of the things that struck me about this is, is that um, I suppose I was expecting that this would be Shinran um, putting together a kind of systematic defense of pure land. Um, but he, at least in the beginning part, doesn't do that so much as he writes a commentary to things that other people have said. Um, so he presents a lot of passages some of them quite repetitive. Um, I mean, very, you know, saying the same thing as a previous passage that he's quoted. But I gather that the reason that he's doing that is to show that there's, there's, a, that there are a number of texts that are making, that are advocating the Nembutsu or the, that are advocating this Pure Land perspective. That it's not simply one passage from one text, but there's a, a you know. A, a canon of literature that supports this. And then he proceeds to quote several of the um, patriarchs of the Jodo Shinshu school. And something that I, I don't think I'd realized is that um, the patriarchs of the Jodo Shinshu school uh, include Nagarjuna, which is why he keeps, why he refers to Nagarjuna in the Painted Scrolls, and also in, in, in this chapter, Vasubandhu. So those are the two Indian patriarchs of Pure Land. And then... Um, uh, Tandwan. Uh, yeah, Tandwan. Uh, oh, Tandwan. Is, is it Tandwan? Um, yeah, well, that's how it's written here, uh, Tandwan. Yeah, yeah Tandwan. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, Shinran's name apparently is the Shin is 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 from the Chinese translation of uh, Vasubandhu, and the the Ran is the Japanese pronunciation of the same character of Don Luan's name, and then Shandao and and Honen is actually a, a patriarch of the Jodo Shinshu school. So all of these people are, um, or many of them are are cited. So. It, I just I find the structure of this work interesting, and the way that he proceeds to make his his case is is to uh, you know to appeal to the authority of you know, previous teachers. Yeah, the other one. There's also uh, Tao Cho or Dao Cho. Yeah. Uh, another of the patriarchs, another Chinese uh, right patriarch as well. Right. Is mentioned. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, it's a, it's a bit of a, it's kind of not, it's a bit of a, not a very modern way of um, arguing something, I guess. It, it kind of almost seems like 
a series, well, a series of quotations from sutras and then from commentaries and basically saying, well, here you go. You know, this proves that what I'm saying is right. Uh, right. More or less that. Yeah. Uh, it does in some ways follow a little bit the, the style of the Senchakushu, uh, which is the uh, main work of Honen, mm. uh, which itself was a kind of an assemblage of quotations from uh, Pure Land texts and other, pure, yeah, or different kinds of Pure Land texts with bits of commentary. So it mm. kind of seems like a similar style of work, if you like. Mm. Um, something that I that I discovered, um, I, I, I read a, a little bit of the introduction in the second volume to the painted scrolls, the, the, the notes on the painted scrolls. And I, I don't think I had, I had realized this when we were actually discussing those texts, but I remember being struck by how he would quote a phrase from, from one of the scrolls that said something like, um, everyone without exception Will be a, will be given birth in the pure land, and then he would say, "What that means is, everyone without exception will be born in the pure land." Right? It was just almost exactly the same thing. What I didn't realize was that the scrolls that he's commenting on were all written in Chinese, and his commentary on them was in Japanese. So when, then, then when you translate both of those into English, <laughs> of course they both say the same thing, right? So, so, so I, you know, I, I, um, I came away with a little, a little bit better understanding of this, and 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 something else that it said in there. I don't know whether did you read that chapter on the, uh, I mean, the introduction to the painted scrolls. I haven't yet. Well, one of, one of the things that I that I did find interesting in that is that in in the Buddhism in in Kamakura period when Shinran was was living, um, there was a movement that in, was quite widespread to decentralize the, the uh, practice of Buddhism from temples and more into, you know, what we, what we might call Dharma centers or, or even people's homes. And so um, in temples, there were carved statues that were extremely expensive carved by master artisans and these you know it costs a huge amount of money to to make one of these statues um, but people who couldn't afford that would hire an art artist to paint a scroll and and then the painted scroll would be um, um, placed on a, in an altar or a shrine in someone's home or a smaller center and then the painted scrolls often had with them not as part of the scroll itself, but a um, a sheet of paper that would be pasted, you know, mounted next to the scroll that would have a quotation from some prominent master. And so it was it was those painted scroll those those inscriptions that that he was commenting on. And then Shinran took it, you know, a, a, a step further. Um, there was a kind of hierarchy of, you know, sacred value, you might say, that statues were considered the most 
um, worthy of worship objects. Painted scrolls were second, and then simply having Namu Amida Butsu written on a on a scroll in calligraphy would be the the the, the most humble um, form of worship. And Shinran deliberately turned that upside down and said the a scroll that just has Namu Amida Butsu is the most sacred object. And um, statues are uh, of tertiary value. So, so he was part of, you know, we've talked in, in previously about the popularization of, of, of Buddhism and is making it accessible to people who didn't have a lot of money and people who didn't have a lot of education, um, which appeals to me. I mean, I think at heart, I'm, uh, even though I appreciate the work of scholars, um, at, at heart, I'm much more of a populist, I think. You know? <laughs> and, and so I, I really appreciate that about Shenron, what, what he was doing. That's very interesting what you're saying about the scrolls, because um, obviously you're talking uh, at the moment about the, uh, the context of Pure Land, but uh, I immediately also uh, thought of Nichiren, because uh, he did exactly the same. Um, right. uh, he emphasized the, the, well, the Daimoku, which is the painted, uh, well, he even painted it himself, didn't he? He created his own uh, kind of textual painted representation of the Lotus Sutra. Yes. And so instead of having an image of the Buddha, uh, he would have, or his followers would have, uh, that representation of, uh, of the Lotus Sutra. And I mean, that continues as well. But I hadn't thought of it in terms of that idea of uh, having a kind of sacred object, if you like, that is more, uh, uh, that is basically cheaper to get hold of, really, uh, right. than having a, an expensive uh, Buddha image. That's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. Uh, when I was in Japan, um, I, was, I was really um, struck at, at how that spirit of making things accessible to people who, who aren't necessarily affluent has changed in, in a sense because many people, uh, Shin, Shin Buddhists, will have in their home a kind of private shrine, um, which, which is often in the form of a cabinet. The cabinet can be closed. And then I have one here. Do you? I <laughs> have one, yeah, which I bought in Kyoto. Yeah. Oh, did you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But well, I bought one of the cheapest ones that were there, and uh, so yeah, I, I went to one of these shops, you know, where they yeah. where they sell these uh, um, uh, 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 butsudans, butsudans right. they're called. Yeah, like, exactly. Kind of Buddha houses, uh, literally. Yeah. And yeah. It, yeah, it's just incredible that they made it out of the most ornate wood with gold leaf, with all kinds of decoration. Some yeah. of them have electric lighting inside and all kinds of stuff and you know right. and they range from being quite small mine was one of the smallest i could find because yeah. i needed to carry it on the plane uh, back. Oh. <laughs> um uh, but some of them were you know the size of a wardrobe or something like that or oh, a, clo yes. a closet as you might call it yeah right. um and uh yeah i mean amazing amounts of money and, and the other thing was incense 
the cost of incense is like, so I, I bought some Japanese incense in the same shop. And I bought, I think, probably the cheapest incense that they had there. But, you know, some of the incense, it was like hundreds of pounds, you know, for one mm. packet of incense. Because mm. it was such, you know, precious um, uh, aromas in it and flowers and so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah. and uh, I, was, uh, I was astonished at how much you could pay, uh, you know, for different kinds of uh, sacred objects or yeah, things to do with your, your Buddhist practice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've I've heard that people could spend um, well, you know, months, uh, maybe up to years worth of worth of salary, uh, you know, of income on 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 their butsudan. It, it becomes really. It's as if the more expensive your butsudan is, the more pious you are. Right. I'm and trying to remember now. I think mine. Might have cost something around three hundred dollars, something like that. But it was right. the cheapest one in the shop, uh, really. Um, right. Yeah, and I mean, some of them would have been, yeah, like thousands and thousands of dollars. Yeah, ten, twenty thousand dollars, no problem. Yeah. Uh, even more. Yeah. Some someone once gave, gave me a, a gift of, of incense that was extremely expensive. I mean, I could tell by the way it was packaged and um so, somehow i've but but it was like each stick of incense which is you know just you know a few inches tall you know would burn for maybe 15 minutes would 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 cost many many dollars yeah. <laughs> so i think that i think that particular package of incense probably lasted me about 10 years <laughs> uh yeah, so um, so anyway, coming back to um, the Kyogyo Shinsho. So we've established that it, it's, um, it comprises a lot of quotations from different sutras and commentaries. And mm. actually, there isn't that much commentary by Shinran, is there? At least not in this first part. Um, in, in some places, it's just simply the quotation without any kind of comment at all. Right. Uh, sometimes there's a comment of a line or two. And in a few places, the, the comment is, um, is a bit more extensive. There's also um, questions and answers. Uh, and I'm assuming those questions and answers are kind of from him, that maybe the question is something that somebody once asked him or something like that. And he's put right. that question in there and then he right. answers it. Uh, or maybe it was his own question or maybe it's his, um, his kind of um, pedagogic device you know, to put questions and answers. But you have that in there as well, questions and answers. You know, I, I, I was I was I was struck by that, and I, I wondered whether that's um, whether whether that was a, a, a conscious attempt on his part to follow the form that a good many philosophical texts that were translated in into Chinese and eventually that he would have known in Chinese, whether whether they. Um, whether, whether they were copying that form, because that's an extremely common way for an Indian philosophical text to to be presented. You begin with with a, a question uh, or you know a kind of hypothetical um, objection mm. that somebody might raise. Right. We. I mean, we get that in things like the Bodhicharya Avatara, don't we? Um, 
Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. exactly. And, and in Nagarjuna's text as well. I mean, that sounds quite uh, convincing what you just said there. Um, yeah, particularly given if one of the um, Pure Land patriarchs was Nagarjuna himself. Um, right. Uh, to model that kind of, uh, uh, that way of uh, expressing an idea in terms of question and answer. What, what if, you give any uh, thought to how it is that um, Nagarjuna and Vasubandhu could be seen as pure land um, patriarchs? Um, I think the concept of difficult practice and easy practice comes from Nagarjuna. Uh, so I think uh, that uh, according to Shinran, that's the origin of that idea. Mm. Um, but I, uh, uh, right now I can't point to the text uh, where, where that's talked about. But I was going to comment, um, I, I think it's later on towards the end of chapter uh, two, which we're looking at now, um, there's a passage at the end of the text which often circulates independently as a text called the Shoshinge. And it's basically a kind of um, a commentary about the patriarchs of, uh, of Pure Land uh, Buddhism mm. uh, and what they contributed, if you like. Um, mm. So I think when we get onto that a bit later, maybe some of those questions will become a bit clearer. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the things that um, struck me or maybe even confused me was that I was struggling to identify the source of quite a number of the quotations, um, including where, for instance, in section nine, it refers to the Sutra of Salvation through the perfect enlightenment of Amida. And in the note there, it says that's also known as the larger Amida Sutra or the Sutra of the 24 vows. But the larger Amida Sutra has 48 vows is one of one thing. Right. And when I tried to find that passage in the larger Amida Sutra, I could not find it. Um, so that left me a bit confused. Hmm. And after that, in section 10, it refers to another uh, text called the Sutra of the Immeasurable Pure Enlightenment of Equality. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what text that is either. Um, yeah. You know, I, 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 I uh, was unable to identify or to recognize um, many of these texts that he, that he quotes. There are so many Mahayana sutras that it, it no longer surprises me to encounter one that I've never heard of. Right. Yeah, we need a kind of annotated... Um, you know, version of this where somebody's identified where it all comes from. Um, right. But we don't have that in the in the version that we're looking at. No. Um, um, there is there is in in the second volume um, a list of sutras that are names and and titles. Um, that are cited. What 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 is that one there? The the Sutra of Salvation. Um, just look quickly and see. Yeah, it, 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 this this has this has in, in the uh, Sutra of Salvation through the perfect enlightenment of Amida, and it has the the title in 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 uh, 
in, in, in Chinese. This is one of the five extant translations of the Sukhavati Vyuha Sutra. Yeah, we, we, so we do have the, um, uh, the passages there. So the, the passages that I was referring to uh, actually are from the Amitayas uh, Sutra because it talks right. about immeasurable life rather than immeasurable light. Right. Um, but it's a bit confusing because in the note it refers to the Amida Sutra, which would suggest the, uh, the Sakavati Vyuha Sutra, but that's not what's being referred to. Yeah. But also as well, it, it seems like there's a certain overlap uh, between passages in certain sutras. Right. Um, I mean, one of the things that I've, I've read elsewhere as well is that um, one of the things that Shinran tends to do, which, um, which I think Honen also did, is when he kind of renders a passage from uh, a sutra, maybe it's from Chinese and he renders it in Japanese or something like that. Right. He will often kind of, well, yeah, let's say change. Uh, change some of the terms uh, and kind of reinterpret the passage uh, or rewrite the passage even in a way right. that um, more harmonizes with this vision about things. So, so not only have you got like a process of selecting uh, quotations from the sutras, you've actually got a process of kind of editing them uh, or, or, or slightly rewriting them. Right. That, that's one of the reasons maybe why they're not so easy to identify as well because they've been um, kind of updated if you like um, yeah yeah and, uh, um, in in volume two where, where is that list of works that are cited you can you can find it has the um, the Tai show number the the, uh, the the Chinese canon and um, the the text number that uh, for each of these and and I I just looking over them I don't find any of them in which the Sanskrit title is given. There are a number of sutras in in Chinese that for which the original Sanskrit either has been lost or. It was never actually ever a text in China, in in Sanskrit. It was just a Chinese composition that was that was um, distributed as a, as a sutra. Right. Um, and, I think and, I think they think that the the sutra of immeasurable life is one of those, don't they? I think so. Hmm. I think so. Um, so the and and then and then there are a number of translations that really are translations. Of which there are many versions, and so there may be one from the, you know, the the Song Dynasty, and another one from, from um, from an, from another another period. Right. Yeah. So in the, in the Chinese canon, as you say, with the Taisho numbers, sometimes you've got three or four translations of the same text. Right. Uh, but done at different times and from different versions. Right. Mm. Yeah. And, and, and those um, those have actually proven to be quite useful to uh, to scholars who are trying to recreate the history of Mahayana Buddhism because some texts that were translated into Chinese over the period of 
500 years. There may be five different translations that are now in the canon. And um, people who have studied, compared these translations have discovered that, um, that the later translations may be quite a bit larger than the, than the earlier translations, which indicates that the texts were not fixed in, in size. I mean, people keep, even, even the Sanskrit text, uh, people seem to have, you know, kept adding to them. Right. So you could have, like, say, in the third century, um, somebody taking a Sanskrit text to China, and they would translate that, and then they'd have a Chinese version. Mm -hmm. And then maybe a couple of centuries later, somebody would bring over another Sanskrit version, which maybe in the meantime had grown and changed and maybe incorporated teachings right. that were, that were um, developing at that time. Uh, and then they translate that to China, into Chinese and have, uh, well, a text with the same name, but the content would be different. Right. And right. then, well, I think the, the, they created the canon quite a bit later, didn't they? Kind of a catalogue of texts. And yeah. so, you know, maybe even the, in the first instance, people didn't have access to all of these translations all at the same time. But through the process of... Um, gathering together a canon, they must have started to realize, oh, well, there's, yeah, four or five versions of this one mm. sutra. Mm. And, and they, I don't think they ascribed rank to those. They just were all considered legitimate. Yeah. And, and uh, I, I think that that's, perhaps that's troubling to um, Theravadans because, I mean, the, one of the features, I guess, of the Theravadan school is that at least the um, the claim in, in Theravada is that is that their canon is fixed. You know, you can't add to it, you can't subtract from it. Um, you can't. Uh, that is that's a belief that turns out not to be able not not to be substantiated, mm. <laughs> substantiated, but. Um, that is nevertheless their claim. Whereas in Mahayana, it doesn't seem to trouble people very much. When yeah, people, and I got the impression that they weren't trying to create um, a, a closed canon. So even when, like I, I remember doing some reading on the idea of sutra catalogues, um, mm -hmm. which is basically the idea of a, a Mahayana canon. So people would try to gather together a list of, okay, what are all the sutras that there are? Make a list. Um, right. And... Uh, you know, even with the Taisho numbers, sometimes when uh, the, um, they've identified three or four uh, versions of the same text, they actually have consecutive numbers, don't they? Like two, 201, 202, 203, something like that. Right, right. Uh, but uh, at least from what I read, there was never any idea that um, the idea was to necessarily close the canon but just simply to, to have a record of, 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 of everything. Although as well, there does seem to be the idea of um, apocryphal sutras, uh, even in China as well. I'm, I'm not quite sure what the criteria were that they used to determine that. Right. And, 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 it, and it, it, it could well be that, that uh, um, one person's canonical text is another person's apocryphal sutra. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 and in the Japanese canon, 
they include things like the works of Shinran as part of the canon. Um, right, right. Yeah. Um, so, so okay. Well, we've we've established that there are sources for the quotations, although I think it'd probably take us quite a bit of work to to actually um, pin all of them down more right. accurately. Right. Um, so yeah, I, I started reading uh, the first few pages, and um, uh, well, so in chat. Chapter one is, is very, very brief, and I didn't really feel there was a huge, uh, a huge amount that came out of it. Uh, there was one idea uh, that caught my attention uh, in, in the first chapter, which is, um, the which is also in the first section of the first chapter. And it was this idea that... Uh, uh, Amida's directing of virtue to sentient beings has two aspects. The aspect for our going forth to the Pure Land and the aspect for our return to this world. Mm -hmm. And that seems to be, that's mentioned again, I think, in chapter two as well, the same idea. And uh, I was quite intrigued by that and I wasn't sure that I understood what it meant. Um, the, the first part seemed a bit easier to me. Um, so the, the basic idea is that um, was Amida was a Bodhisattva. He was the Bodhisattva Dharmakara. And he made the Bodhisattva vow. Uh, and his vow consists in 48 vows. Mm -hmm. And in the, so in the process of fulfilling all of those vows, he created uh, a huge amount of punya merit um, and we could say as well that uh, Sukhavati the pure land is like the, the expression or the the materialization of his merit um, but anyway all, all of this merit that he's got which is extremely beneficial he then uh, directs towards us he, he gives it to us basically um, and he gives it to us because uh, that merit uh, enables us or is the means by which uh, we can be reborn in the pure land. Um, it, I, I guess uh, maybe to put it another way, he's gifting us his going for refuge. He's gifting us his, um, his connection with the Dharma. So instead of thinking that we're the ones who've got to make all the effort and struggle and so forth. Uh, Amitabha's done all of that, and he's gifting all of the all of the fruits of that to us. And that's what and that's what enables us to be born in the pure land and to be assured of enlightenment. Um, are you okay with what I'm saying so far? Yeah, I think yeah. You, you expressed that very well. And what I would, I would uh, just um, comment is, is that when he gets around to explaining the meaning of um, Namu Amida Butsu, um, the, he, ex, he um, explains Namu as meaning going for refuge. And so in going for refuge to Amida, um, which is what you're doing when you say the Namo Amida Butsa, the Nem Butsa, when, when you 
are going for refuge to Amida, you immediately are participating in his going for refuge. Right. I, I, I think I'd like to dwell on that a bit more, actually, um, because that's that's very interesting uh, what you're saying to use the language of of going for re for refuge. Because I mean, m mostly the, the language that is used is like a transference of merit. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but our our well within our particular uh, Buddhist group, Tree Ratna, we emphasize what's central to practice is going for refuge. Right. And we generally emphasize that that is something that comes from you, I think, you know, that, that uh, the individual uh, through their own uh, volition or and their own commitment and their own effort, uh, they go for refuge. And that's kind of like the motor uh, behind their process of spiritual transformation. Mm -hmm. um, but, but if we think about going for refuge in terms of um, Shinran's perspective, we're kind of not the authors of our own going for refuge, if you like. Our own going for refuge uh, is gifted to us. Mm -hmm. uh, so rather than maybe becoming complacent or proud um, of our own spiritual commitment uh, and our own, you know, I don't know, dharmic intensity or something like that, mm -hmm. um, the, uh, the, the, the invitation will be to feel grateful Mm -hmm. uh, that Amitabha has gifted you his going for refuge or, or that you're participating in his going for refuge as you expressed it. Right. Um, and so it gives you, I think, potentially quite a different way of relating to um, the volition behind your practice. You're, you're less likely to um, appropriate it uh, to your ego identity, to your self-clinging and more likely to relate to it in terms of feeling blessed maybe uh, in terms of feeling grateful and in terms of feeling that maybe you're in touch with something that it that goes beyond your ordinary will uh, or your ordinary volition um, mm -hmm. so I, I think that that's uh, I, I i'm quite intrigued by that i think that's um quite compelling yeah but yeah, to but go back to the sorry diamati go ahead Oh, I was just going going to say that in addition to gratitude, this his his perspective on going for refuge through, you know, as you put it, being given the gift of going for refuge, um, is also is it also is conducive to humility. And and um, I I I recall um, my my professor in Japan was a Jodo Shinsho priest. When I, I told him, I wrote to him and, and told him that I had um, joined a Zen organization in Canada. And he wrote back a um, very polite and encouraging letter, but he said, I'm really disappointed that you chose to go the, the, Zen, the Zen route because um, he, he said Zen people are notorious for being extremely proud and and uh, you know of their spiritual practice and and uh you know you you cannot be proud about going for refuge to amita i mean it's just it's not something about which you can possibly be proud it's right yeah you you can't appropriate it because you right. yeah because you've not um it's not to do with you um right. yeah right. um i mean i'm sure people 
still do appropriate it but but it, but in a way in, inherent in the idea is a kind of is a sort of critique of appropriation isn't it and that's the whole point really isn't it uh, that it, mm. it, it wants to communicate the idea that this isn't about you deserving something or mm. about you having put in the effort in and therefore you get the result mm. it's about this um this value or this this um influence in the world that is not it's not contractual um it's not it's not just because it's pure compassion um mm. there's no you know there's no if you do this, you will get this. Um, right. it, it's pure compassion. And so it do, it's not to do with um, our, uh, uh, our egocentric um, attempts to justify the value of ourselves, if you like, um, our own spirituality. But going back to the, you know, that passage that I mentioned, so I think we've clarified a bit what the, what, what the aspect of our going forth means to the pure land uh, and the transference of, of merit from Amida. But the bit that I wasn't sure about was where it says, and the aspect for our return to this world. I mean, that sounds like some kind of reflection about the Bodhisattva who decides to be reborn uh, to help others, something like that. But I yeah. don't know whether, what, whether that's what it's referring to. Yeah, I, 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 I think it might be. Um, maybe only because I had the same idea. <laughs> so, so when you have the same idea, it must be right. <laughs> but but it, it does it does say in the Sukhavati, as I in the Sukhavati Vyuha Sutra, as I recall, that um, that every everyone can stay in the pure land until they attain nirvana. The one exception being those who voluntarily return to the Sahaloka in order to uh, to do bodhisattva work. Yeah, what I thought was interesting about that passage, partly because it's in the very first paragraph um, of the, the, the text, mm. is that normally I associate um, uh, Shinran with talking a lot about the Pure Land and going to the Pure Land and being reborn in the Pure Land, but not so much about returning to this world uh, as a bodhisattva, if you like, to help others. Right. So it interested me that that is mentioned clearly in the very first section, um, right. which suggests to me that it must be a very significant uh, part of his vision. Right. And, and whether, equally, whether those two aspects are to be understood um, cosmologically or whether to be, they're to be understood more existentially uh, uh, or both, um, you know, that, that's another question that I have. So when I say cosmologically, what I mean to say is what that could mean is that in some literal way, uh, after death, you get, be, you get reborn in this land that's called Sukhavati and maybe you become fully enlightened or you can become very, very spiritually advanced. And then on that basis, you decide uh, to be reborn in the human realm, as you said before, uh, mm -hmm. to help other beings as a bodhisattva. That would be like a, a kind of cosmological vision. But I, I wondered um, whether you could understand it more existentially or psychologically as well, uh, which is to do with, um, uh, so that the first part, I guess, is about transcendence. It's about trying to connect with um, uh, meaning, with a will, with reality that goes beyond 
the mundane that goes beyond ordinary life, which is obviously Amida. Uh, and Shinran in many places makes it clear that when uh, your confidence in Amida arises, that is to say, when Shinjin arises, uh, you are at that moment born in the Pure Land. Mm -hmm. he, he does say that. Mm -hmm. um, and, but all of that kind of suggests something like a transcendence of the world or something like that, or taking you away from the world. And I, I wondered whether the, the aspect of the return to the world is, wants to express more the idea of a compassion, compassionate attentiveness to other people. Um, so it's not just about you being reborn in the pure land, because then you're going to be fine. It's not just about you, but it's also about um, reaching out to others on that basis. Um, yeah. Uh, so that they too, obviously, can be liberated. Um, so I kind of saw saw in that uh, something like uh, the the self regarding aspect of practice, or the self care aspect of practice, maybe, uh, and the other regarding aspect of practice um, in terms of the return to this world. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Look, looking at that also from a, from a practical point of view, I was. Um, we've talked before about about a, a, um, a kind of potential conflict. I mean, if you accept Shinran completely, then almost every other kind of practice that one could ever do would just be what he calls sundry practices and therefore an obstacle. And, and so that, that raises the interesting question of the motivation. I mean, what if you still meditate, for example? <laughs> you know, what if you still um, do the kinds of things that that uh, that are considered Buddhist practice everywhere else outside of Pure Land Buddhism? Um, <clears throat> and it seems that one way that you could sort of look at those practices is that they are helping you develop the skills that would be needed if you do return to the Sahaloka to help other beings. So that doing those practices is no longer self-power. It's no longer something that you're doing for yourself, but it's something that you're doing for others. Well, I mean, does that mean that they directly benefit or that it's more, well, you, as you said, you're, you're, it's like training um, for the future? Um, uh, I, I guess it could well, be both. It could be a little bit of both because it could be um, <clears throat> training for the future, but also training for the, for the present. I mean, recognizing that spending uh, some time meditating or studying Shinran, for that matter, may make you more effective right now in this world in, in uh, being of value to other, to other beings. So that reading Shinran isn't necessarily something that you're doing, calculating that this is going to increase my chances of getting into the pure land, but rather reading Shinran may make you more effective um, in, in, in being of benefit to others in this world. Right. So it kind of uh, inspires a, a different kind of relationship uh, with the practices that you do. Mm -hmm. uh, and a different kind of motivation for doing them. So instead of seeing them in an instrumental way, if you like, that 
if I do A and B, I will receive C. Uh, you've already received C. Um, right. So you don't need to do the practice and C in that case being um, uh, assured of being born in the pure land or um, that you're somehow intimately connected with uh, Amitabha's mind and that will always be the case. So that's not something you have to win uh, or gain. Uh, so your practice doesn't need to have that as its purpose. Uh, your practice could have a different purpose, um, as you're saying, uh, to uh, um, may maybe to help others to develop skills to help others or something like that. Yeah, um, to, to, help, yeah. uh, to help others, um, to put them in touch with, they're, they're also having received C, for example. I mean, you know, <clears throat> because, because that, receiving, that, that receiving C is something that's available to everyone. But there's there still seems to be some room for enabling people to recognize that that they've been given that gift. Yeah, I mean that's where all the work is, isn't it? It seems so. Right. That's where all the paradox and puzzle is, I think. Right. Um, but uh, but I what what does intrigue me a lot is this reflection about um, uh, yeah what what is the purpose of practice, if you like, and. Uh, uh, um, yeah, the vision behind practicing. And so rather than practicing in order to make yourself worthy uh, or in order to reach something, uh, you practice on a different basis. Um, one option is practicing on the basis of gratitude, I think, is one thing. Um, and you've mentioned the idea of, uh, that you're practicing because what you're doing may then... Uh, benefit other people and I, I while we, while this idea was coming up I was thinking of Dogen and well you know you've just indicated that Zen people are very proud uh, of their practice um, there, there were there's there's this idea in Dogen um, that uh, through your sitting uh, you awakened the whole universe right right and uh, there's something about that that I just find absolutely spectacular, that idea. Uh, so it's not that you awaken yourself. Uh, it's that you awaken others through your meditation, uh, that somehow it has this, um, uh, yeah, this sort of cosmic impact or something. It's, it's interconnected with others. Uh, because uh, um, through your meditation, uh, enlightenment manifests. And that manifests not just to you, but to others. Um, mm -hmm. And there's, there's something about that that I find really, really powerful. So there's something in practice itself that is inherently a gift to others or something like that, that is uh, actually offering them uh, the opportunity to, to, to wake up. And, and they're doing it for you as well. That's the other thing that Dogen also says that. Um, so w when you're meditating, you are awakening the whole universe, but the whole universe is also awakening you, um, right, right. Um, which is a, a very interconnected uh, perspective. Um, yeah. yeah. Some uh, uh, a topic that that I that I would like to to discuss, but we're we're getting towards the end of our time. But maybe we can put this um, try to remember to discuss this next time. Is is the emphasis that he places in a number of, especially when I think when he's talking about Nagarjuna, it comes up, 
with the emphasis that he places on non-origination. Um, Where, where's that talked about? Um, when, when he's when he's talking about Nagarjuna. Uh, let me see if I can point to it. Um, the Nagarjuna section is, you know, the first the first section. Yeah, I don't I don't see it right now, but but um, it, uh, read read the section uh, on Nagarjuna again, and and uh, as I recall, it comes up there. Um, the this non non origination. Okay, uh, I'll have a look at that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm just curious as to that. That seems to be how he, for him, Nagarjuna fits into the lineage of pure land people. Is 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 that um, Nagarjuna established non origination through his arguments? Yeah, well, you're right. We we are coming to the end of it. Time seemed to pass quite quickly, didn't it? Um, there was also something about the first boomy that I wanted to talk about, but we'll we'll have to talk about that next time. Okay.